This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Welcome to Future You. I'm Michael Horn, joined by my colleague, Jeff Salengo, and we're excited for our guest today. We've got Hunt Lambert, uh, the Dean of the Continuing Education Division uh, School at uh, Harvard University. Really thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Hunt, a question we love to ask our, fir- our, our guests when we get started is, how did you get involved in higher education uh, uh, to begin with? And just sort of from a personal angle, why, why this crazy space? So it, like so many like me, it's a complete accident. I, I don't want to pretend it was intentional. I had a long industry career as a serial entrepreneur creating companies all over the world in the internet and wireless space. And I was done with that at 38 and bored. So I started to teach, built an entrepreneurship center for a public university, became VP of economic development, launched 15 companies out of our labs, and then got really concerned during the big state budget cuts that we weren't serving the students we used to and proposed and got money to create a new public online university called Colorado State University Global Campus. And we grew that very efficiently. It's now 20,000 students from nothing, and then took ideas from that back to the research campus and launched degree programs from the faculty. And that was very successful. And then Harvard called, and I said, who? (laughs) (laughs) The the right reaction. Yeah, Yeah, I was like, what do you mean you do this too? Uh, and discovered Harvard had been doing this for more than 100 years and did it at a very affordable cost, which was highly unusual uh, in the Harvard environment. And I said, wow, if they can do it, anybody can do it. And if I can go there and give that message, maybe it'll empower us to get to the 30 million we don't serve. Was it, uh, but going to Harvard also is, you know, tradition and highly ranked place, right? They, they're kind of resistant to change once in a while. Did you find that in the, even in the continuing education world, or did you feel like they were going to be willing to be more experimental? So this was a surprise to me and probably is to listeners as well, is on the edge of Harvard sat this division of continuing ed with an extension school that had been going for more than 100 years and had been building online courses since 1997. And I discovered they had this little entity that was their teaching and learning innovation group. And it had money to invest, to innovate, low tuition, uh, because the Harvard name makes it less expensive uh, to acquire new students, if you don't mind using that term in higher ed. (laughs) And that money went back into innovation. And in fact, Harvard was way ahead And so exactly the motivation I had to help start Colorado State's global campus, I said, wow, Harvard can serve tens of thousands of students around the world at a fraction of the Harvard campus price because you're not paying for campus. And we can extend these incredible programs all over the world with modern technology. And we do that. Uh, This year, we have 600 online courses and 22,000 online students. Wow. And so you're, you're, you're actually sitting in a continuing education school at a very interesting time in our human history, I would argue, uh, because the imperative for what we've uh, maybe cliche now, but lifelong learning has perhaps never been more important given the technological change in careers and workforce and just half-life of knowledge decreasing and so mm-hmm. forth. How do you frame that challenge and opportunity uh, fr- from a dean position? So one of the things we've spent the last four years doing is dramatically bending the cost curve for uh, delivering courses. And we've done that with technology, and we've actually got it down so we can deliver a live, small, intimate course anywhere in the world for about $4,000 a semester of total technology cost. That means we can do highly intimate Harvard-type courses online, but it also means since all of this is public uh, access tools, uh, anybody can do it. 
And so we sit here in Harvard and say, now we can be Harvard and we can be Harvard affordable. And who is it we serve? And the key to who we serve is it's an adult part-time learner in the extension school. And Harvard understands that there are a great number of very smart, very capable adult learners, and we attract them. And I looked, uh, I have a great story. I was at an uh, alumni and student event in Miami a few weeks ago, and I had learners standing in front of me aged 15 to 75. Wow. And it brought back to me is right now, perhaps by accident through our summer school, our professional programs, our graduate certificates that stack into degrees, uh, we're serving this community of learners across a 60-year learning life. And we as higher ed have been touting for a long time they need to be lifelong learners. You need to be lifelong learners. And I said, what if we turned this around and said, wait, it's our responsibility as higher ed to help you across this. You're going to have 30 jobs in three careers over 60 years if you're a recent college grad. What if we started repackaging our curriculum purposely and called it a 60-year curriculum? It's an idea that Gary Matkin started out of the University of California, Irvine. And we've assembled a global group that's going to get together in June to try to figure out what it is. Because I think it is the future of divisions of continuing ed. Me meaning that uh, uh, deans from a bunch of continuing ed schools will come together to start to uh, uh, define, standardize, figure out what is a 60-year curriculum, what are the key parts, how do you help students navigate, what else is involved in that? So, so I think there's three parts to it. And yes, I've got a group of 29 of us that have okay. gotten together as uh, deans of big CE units at big research universities, and it's a global group. Uh, but we've also brought in industry and nonprofits because we think it's bigger than us when, when you talk about this big a part of our economy and our workforce. And we're not pretending we know what it is, and we're not pretending the answer is the same for every school. And so the three parts we're doing at Harvard is, one, we've invested heavily in what we call learning engineering. Can you engineer predictable learning outcomes through the design and delivery of courses and measure it in real time and continuously improve? That's our 10-year learning engineering strategy to create a new engineering field. We have a 60-year curriculum strategy where we say over the next decade, we are going to figure out what this is and how to purposely serve a student uh, across this wide range. But then is the key part that, that's probably the hardest, honestly, and that's to build the strategic information systems that lets us do it. And we are in the process of building that of saying, what if all this learning engineering information about every course, every student, every path to success was integrated with your entire catalog from age 15 mm -hmm. to 75, and you could build an Amazon-type rec recommendation engine based on students' profiles of what they've done with you, what's on LinkedIn, and, and actually be a part of their lifelong learning. Uh, so, Hunt, you, you said an interesting thing there called a pathway or a path, right? Um, you know, un typical undergraduates, typical graduate students have that pathway, right? They kind of know when they apply and come in, you know, what they need to do to get to that uh, credential. The, the, the issue that or the thing that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is, you know, a lot of this quote unquote lifelong learning, um, which maybe we could come up with a better term for that, uh, uh, is, uh, I, is, I, is I kind of like 60 year curriculum. 60 year yeah, curriculum I, think, nice. I think that may be the way to go um, is 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 self-directed. Right. So do you imagine having a bunch of pathways so that people who are not great at self-directing their own careers uh, or their own learning after somebody has done it for them for most of their life? Would, could you imagine uh, structured pathways that would lead them to where they need to be? I actually might not use the word structured okay. pathways. Okay. And the reason for that is uh, I think at least half of the jobs that will exist in 10 years don't exist today. Right. 
So it's presumptuous to pretend you know what a structured pathway. The way I describe it inside Harvard, what we have all done historically, two, four, and seven-year curricula, are necessary and they used to be sufficient. They're not sufficient anymore. What is sufficient is that somebody hold a learner's hands. There are 6,500 universities and tens of thousands of private education providers just in the United States. And and I, I might use Amazon. I mean, an Amazon recommendation engine, they know you. They have some sense of what you need next. I think that concept could be applied in higher ed with an information system. And in a, in a time when trust is falling everywhere, I think the great research universities and, and perhaps the university where you did your undergraduate is somebody you can trust to give you advice. So more than pathway, I'm thinking of hand-holding. Okay. Ha, ha, so, oh, I yeah, was no, going to say something, yeah, yeah. You know, something we've speculated about that in, right now you have financial advisors. What, why not learning advisors that sit alongside you? How do you pay for that? Like, what, Because that, that's a much longer relationship potentially that you're talking about. Hey, there's two ways to pay for it. First, you need a, a really sophisticated CRM, uh, mm-hmm. the type of thing people are building in Salesforce. But I look to Paul LeBlanc and what he's done at Southern New Hampshire as a lead indicator. He's built a system much like that at a very affordable tuition price. Meaning um, College for America. College yeah, for America, yeah. but also the Southern New Hampshire offerings. Right where there, you do have an advisor over a very long period of time. Now, theirs is structured within degrees because the regulatory structure right, in the U.S. they're still locked in the credit hour. Uh, well, th- th- they have exemption for CFA, but they're still uh, in the financial aid system. Yeah, so. and, and, and we all are. But if you look at who comes back to me and my peers and our schools, they are almost all self-pay. Many of them get some support from tuition reimbursement from their, univer- from their companies. But our student is characterized by being 34 years old, working full-time, and often with a family. And the reason they're such good students is when they decide to come back, they're paying their own money and their own time that they're taking from work and family. And, and they need help. They don't have time to figure out what's the next. Right. And, of course, right now they can self-pay, right, because maybe they're taking a course here, a course there. Uh, but but in the 60-year curriculum, you're going to be going to school probably more and over a longer period of time, which is going to likely be more expensive. Do you think there needs to be other some other sort of funding mechanism, or do you think the cost could be low enough over that 60-year curriculum, or you could pay a subscription fee for or something like that, that allows you to kind of spread that cost over time? From a public policy perspective, I argue in Washington often that Title IV needs to be broken okay. apart, um, and it needs to apply. And Equip was an attempt to do that, but they made it so complex, honestly, <laughs> that it can't work. Yep. And so uh, I do think Title IV should be taken apart and allowed to support. But I also think there's a a requirement for the provider to lower the price. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we've done at the extension school is you can do a whole undergraduate degree for about $50,000 and a whole graduate degree for about $30,000 from Harvard with no support from our endowment. And we make a surplus to reinvest in technology. Wow! Right. So, but but Hun, as you know, uh, many of your uh, many of your counterparts, uh, they're they're really seen as kind of a real revenue generator, right? So, uh, cost is sometimes higher, uh, or the price is sometimes higher because they need to generate enough of a margin to deliver back to the you know the residential campus or the main campus. Uh, so that might be possible at Harvard. Do you think it's possible at universities across the country? Yes, okay. I absolutely do, uh, and I think the technology that we've implemented and others have implemented have lowered the unit cost and so right but i guess what i'm saying is that you could lower the unit cost but there's still going to be this pressure on these divisions to produce a certain amount of revenue from the from the main campus from the main i I agree with that 
but I'm also, from my entrepreneurial background, you can go for margin on low quantities or you can go for quantity. Hmm. The unserved market in this country is between 30 and 60 million. And if you could get your price, I'll give you an example. We lowered the price of Poetry in America from Lisa New this semester from its normal $1,500, $2,700 to $200. We wanted to do an experiment for a course that people didn't pay for particularly. We got 11 students a semester. And we wanted to make it available for their teachers to take and teach to their high school students. So we jumped enrollment in one course where we ran this experiment from 11 to 360 in one semester. At 360 at $200 a course, the course pays for itself. So I'd argue if you're going to penetrate the underserved market, you have to lower price and be prepared to manage volume. Yeah, and I love the way, as, as a disruptive innovation acolyte, I love the way you said unserved also, because that 30 to $60 million is often an overlooked opportunity. I, switching gears a little bit, just uh, with the time we have remaining, I suspect some of, the, of our listeners aren't familiar with how a continuing ed program uh, that sits within a university of the signaling power that a Harvard degree has, how that would work for graduates of the continuing ed uh, program. They, they get a credential. How does that seen in the marketplace? How, is that, mm-hmm. how, how does Harvard see it? Uh, just, just reflecting on that signaling power that Harvard has. No, it's a really good question. I get it a lot from students and alumni. Uh, Harvard has 12 degree granting entities. And each of those schools, you have your name, their, that name on your credential. Ours is the Harvard Extension School. Um, the world mostly knows that means I had, I put out the energy to go back to school part-time while working full-time and earn a Harvard degree. Uh, most people who know our students and our alumni know that they did the same courses that are just as hard as Harvard courses. They just can't take the time and don't, or don't have the money to enjoy a full-time residential experience. And so the credential is not the same as Harvard College or Harvard Law School or Harvard Business School, uh, but it is Harvard. Hunt, really appreciate all that you're doing, that you're innovating for those 30 to 60 million and uh, redefining what continuing ed and education in general looks like. Thanks for joining us in Future You. Thank you for having me. We'll be back right after this. This episode of Future You was made possible with support from the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University and is the premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. For more information and to apply to our next cohort, go to georgetown.asu.edu. This episode was also made possible with support from the Entangled Group, where innovation meets operations. Entangled is a venture studio focused on helping the education ecosystem transition to support the knowledge economy. We build companies and nonprofits that support higher education institutions as they innovate to carry out their critical missions for society in the 21st century. Welcome back to uh, Future You. I'm Jeff Salingo here along with my colleague, uh, Michael Horn. And uh, we just finished up that great conversation with uh, Hunt Lambert from uh, from Harvard. These continuing education programs have always interested me because I think at many institutions, uh, and no offense to these colleges, they seem as cash cows, uh, especially with these name brand uh, institutions, a place like Harvard. Um, but but it seems like Hunt, um, because their cost of acquisition for getting students, because their name is, is, is so low, they're able to reinvest that in some of the, uh, in some of the technology 
technology and other work that they're doing there. Yeah, and we had the opportunity after the, uh, I would say cameras, but microphones <laughs> stopped, stopped rolling just to talk to him some, about some of the technology stack that they've developed and so forth. And it's, it's fascinating. Over at the Harvard Business School, they've been doing this uh, experiment really for the last five years called HBX and HBX Live. Uh, and HBX Live is basically a way to uh, recreate the Harvard Business School 90-person classroom, but all online. Uh, with it, it's sort of like ESPN. I've taught a class in it before, and it's 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 a wild experience with cameras running around and big faces in front of you, and you can call on them and so forth. But but Hunt said we basically looked at that and said, okay, there's actually 16 really important principles uh, that that you can derive around learning and creating a great experience from that. And then we've worked with Zoom to uh, the, the company that yep. is widely available, uh, so you don't have to have the HBX however live, however much that costs platform, but just Zoom uh, to embed those principles. And then we are able to do uh, classes, synchronous classes with both face to face and online students using the Zoom platform to create a very uh, uh, seamless ex- learning experience for 60 students. And then you can even uh, tape some of that and add asynchronous students on top of that and things like that. And just driving costs down to serve many, many more students on an existing course base. Uh, the, the innovation from a learning perspective is interesting. The innovation on a technology perspective is interesting. The innovation on a cost perspective is interesting. Yeah, so, uh, you know, he's also talked a lot about the, the what he terms the 60-year curriculum. Uh, we were recently on a panel at ASU GSV, Michael, where uh, with Strata, uh, they're launching a new uh, a new institute on uh, on the future of work, and we were talking about a new term for lifelong education that they're going to be uh, trying to define uh, in the next couple of months, and uh, maybe 60-year curriculum might be one of the possibilities. For I, that. I quite like it. I, you know, Ryan Craig, our, our friend from University Ventures Fund, uh, suggested pathways, and I think you sort of floated that yeah, to Hunt. He didn't, he, like he, that. he didn't like well, that. Well, I, I think I added the word structure, and I think that's in, it's an important point. It's an important point, right? I, we didn't get to talk about the the demographics and the backgrounds of students who go to Harvard Extension School. Um, I'm sure they're not as, you know, highly uh, in terms of academics of, of the other graduate schools or the uh, Yeah, I mean, it looks thing. different it from, definitely looks from different. living up there. It definitely looks different. Um, but, but, you know, the, this idea that, you know, he talked about this, you know, four-year, seven-year, five-year curriculum that, you know, they do have structured for undergraduates and graduate students. I, one thing that still makes me nervous about this conversation about lifelong education is that the people who have an education, uh, I think, are much better at um, structuring that over the course of their lifetimes. But just because, by the way, you have a college degree doesn't necessarily mean you can right. structure it. I mean, as we know, a lot of students have trouble getting through an undergraduate or graduate program because they can't self-direct their own learning. And so now we have this belief that suddenly, okay, if we call it lifelong learning, 60-year curriculum, whatever it is, it's going to be continual, um, that suddenly people are going to be able to figure out like what they need to do and when they need to, to do it. Um, and so I think there's going to need to be some structure to it. I, I understand his point about uh, you know, the future of work and jobs are changing so quickly that you don't want something too structured. But but if you kind of leave it open-ended, I think that the people who already take advantage of, of, of lifelong education are going to be the same people who are going to take advantage of it in the future. Yeah, and, and that's why I... I, I I, I suspect we'll see evolution in this, but you 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 asked the question about are you thinking about subscription models and things yep. that we've speculated on this uh, podcast in the past, and it seemed at least at this point the answer is no. But I think that has to change because you're going to have to create uh, a, a relationship with a learning advisor or some sort of intelligent tool uh, that isn't just sitting with you while you're learning, but actually is looking at your progression and careers, the changes in your industry, and so forth uh, to to be able to. Uh, uh, adjust to you. And the other thing that made me a little nervous, just, uh, you know, the Amazon analogy, uh, 
Amazon gets recommendations wrong so often um, that I'm not quite sure that's the mental model. I, I, I take the point. I think it, I think it's useful to think about uh, how it could improve these recommendations and help you chart a course. I'm not. I, I'm just not quite convinced that's the right mental model for what we ultimately want. Yeah, and I, I, I you've mentioned that before, so I'd love to know what's in your Amazon or Netflix <laughs> queue that keeps getting wrong. But uh, but maybe that's a, a a discussion for a future episode of uh, of, of of future you. I mean, I, the other thing he you need for those models to work, right? You know, a lot of people are experimenting with those at the undergraduate level, of course, around advising. Is that you need a lot of data, and the question that I have is for again adult students continuing education are you going to have enough data to make those recommendations you know he talked about you're gonna to have to pull in stuff from linkedin and other venues and a are you going to be able to do that um you know i think increasingly because of what's happening with facebook you're going to see a lot of these more platforms, walls, on, more walls yeah. on stuff like that uh and then of course it, it requires you to continually update those things right and again at the undergraduate level because the student is in your ecosystem you have a lot more control over the data you have on them and how you use it. Once they get outside that ecosystem, um, you know, even if they're alumni, you have a lot less control over that. Yeah, you know, Tom Vanderark, who a writer in the future of education and thinker and, and former head of the Gates Foundation on, on education, uh, has often written about this notion of a learner portfolio or, or, or this uh, personal uh, report card is the wrong word, but that almost f- that follows the learner and the learner owns and can bring its interoperable with learning systems to almost insert into the learning uh, program that you're entering and then it can read that and start to understand you and, and make recommendations. I, I don't know what this looks like. This I, I think he calls it a learner backpack. Right. But uh, but but I, I think there's going to have to be some innovation and evolution on this question. To your point, uh, the other thing you need, and he talked about this, was the learning engineering that they're doing. You need to be able to uh, improve that learner experience. Uh, such that you both create more motivating and efficacious courses and also courses that are able to capture the data from from your clickstream, from different uh, actions you're taking, not just formal assessments, uh, to be able to sharpen those predictions based on what you actually know and can do. And that learning engineering, you know, Brewer Saxberg at Chan Zuckerberg uh, writes about this all the time. That is a difficult uh, 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 skill in science, if you will, and and it's going to... I, I don't know how many institutions will be able to invest in that to, to, to keep that out going. I'm also kind of glad he brought up uh, a point about Title IV um, yeah. and this idea of breaking up Title IV, um, yeah. perhaps using some of those funds for this for lifelong uh, uh, education. I mean, it's clear to me, and, and this is not going to happen in this version of the uh, Higher Education Act, but maybe it happens in the next version, which probably won't be until 2030. My kids will be in college by then. Is that perhaps by then we will have a better cl- better clarity on what's happening with this lifelong education market. And at that point, maybe people will talk, start talking about, you know, we should start focusing these Title IV funds on, on a broader range of, of students and a broader range of needs uh, of the economy. You know, the Higher Education Act, in my mind, has always lagged, you yep. know, far behind um, uh, uh, kind of trends in the, in the marketplace. So I, I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon. But, you know, he's the first one of the, you know, there's not a lot of people within traditional higher education who are talking about that because they don't want to lose those funds on the other side of the ledger, you know, especially with the, uh, you know, traditional undergraduates. Yeah, and I would say data always lags, policy always lags, uh, but what did not lag from my perspective was the questions that Hunt was asking uh, and, and, and the capacity to think about what could this future look like in this pedestal that you have in Harvard? Deeply encouraging that they were thinking about those uh, questions. Yeah, and it was, it was great that, you know, he was talking about his background at, uh, at CSU Global 
global and it was great that you know harvard um you know which tends i don't think to necessarily be at the forefront of a lot of things um because of its you know history and uh, and its prestige you know it tends to be a little bit uh risk averse but i think that you know they they went out and got somebody from csu global and and uh and, and was able to to do that so well it was great to have uh hun on today and it's uh, great to have uh, to be with you again uh, michael uh and all of our audience out there uh so whatever platform you're listening to us on please uh, subscribe and, and rate us um and please send uh, feedback uh whether in the comments or uh, email us to, to tell us about guests and others uh that's how we ended up uh, connecting with hunt so it's always uh, good to to give us some suggestions until the next time until next week's episode uh thank you for joining uh future you